Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A quick listener note. This podcast contains adult language and descriptions of violence. No, I ain't going to work. I ain't going to talk about all that. I mean, y'all some reporters. I ain't, I ain't doing all that. I mean, that's 22 years ago. I'm still waiting for the dude to die. I mean... I thought this phone call might have been telling me that he was up for death or his, or his sentence, I thought. Uh, you mean his execution? Yes, yes. That's Jeff Hattenbeck. He was good friends with Eric Benj, one of Edna Franklin's grandsons. In fact, Hattenbeck was the first person Eric called the night he found his grandmother murdered. His name is mentioned in an affidavit provided to Charles Raby's lawyer, Sarah Fraser by a woman Eric worked with. This co-worker told Sarah that Eric had also called her that night. He was hysterical, she said. She went over to the house. Here's what she told Sarah back in 2002. Quote, That night, Eric was saying that some junkie must have been looking for some money to buy drugs with. He seemed to have an idea of who it might be and why. I think he mentioned that the person who killed his grandmother might have been someone to whom he owed some money. This woman never responded to our requests for an interview. But we thought that Hattenbeck might be able to shed some light on all of this. Turns out, he wasn't interested. The guy said he did it, so there ain't no, there ain't no changing it now. I mean, I mean, he did it that night. Everybody knew he did it. From the Intercept, I'm Liliana Segura, and I'm Jordan Smith. Welcome back to Murderville, Texas, Episode Nine: The Other Suspect. We talked to Hattenbach while he was driving, so the connection was a bit noisy at times. He told us what he remembered about the night Franklin was murdered. So I was the first one he called. He was like my brother. I mean, Miss Franklin was like my like my grandmother. So I was there every day. I mean, at that time we were you know we were kids at the time, and that's kind of like where we hung out at. Yeah, and, and did you go over there that night? Yeah, we were there. Everybody was there. I mean, it must have been really traumatic. You know, one thing that I... W- did, did the police ever talk to you? No. There was no reason for them to talk to me. I, I wasn't there until after everything had happened. I was at work that night. But the same was the Eric. He was at work as well. I started to ask him about some of the other people who had been hanging around Franklin's house in the days before the murder, including Edward Bangs, the other guy Franklin's grandsons named as a potential suspect. Edward Bang. All right, I'm done. I know. I, I see where this is going. I'm done. No, All I'm right. not trying to. Thank you, guys. I know y'all trying to make it seem like it's somebody else. The guy already admitted he did it. I mean, he's pulling all the straws he can because, like I said, he's getting to the end of his time. So, you know what? Next phone call I need is to know whenever they put this dude's death. And so if y'all ain't got that information for me, I can't help y'all. Thank you. So there are a couple notable things about this conversation. 
The first is the police thing. There was every reason to think that the police would want to talk to Hattenbach. As you heard him say, he was the first person that Eric Bench called after finding his grandmother. But, as with so many other things, there's no indication in the police report that investigators ever talked to him. There were plenty of people they never bothered to interview, and witnesses they never followed up with, like John Allen Phillips. He arrived at the house that night with Lee Rose, Edna Franklin's other grandson. We've never been able to reach Phillips. But Mike Giglio, who covered Charles's case in the Houston press, did speak to him back in 2010. What Phillips told Giglio was pretty shocking. Phillips said that when he and Lee arrived at the house, Eric was in his grandmother's bedroom, rummaging through her purse in search of $300. This was a big deal because, if true, it undercuts the state's argument that whoever killed Franklin was trying to steal from her. At Charles's trial, the prosecutor pointed to her purse, which had been emptied out, as proof of this. Now, both Eric and Lee told Giglio that Phillips was wrong about this. Eric said money was the last thing on his mind that night. But between what Phillips said and the recollections of Eric's co-worker, there are some unsettling questions about Eric lurking over this case that we've never been able to shake. Just to be clear, it's not that we think Eric might have been the real killer. He was the first person to find his grandmother, and she did have strands of Eric's hair clutched in her hand. As you might recall, the state tried to explain this away by saying that Eric lived at the house, so it wouldn't be surprising for his hair to be on the living room floor and end up in Franklin's hand after she was attacked. Regardless, the DNA found in blood caked under Franklin's fingernails wasn't Eric's. Still, there is this nagging feeling that Eric knew more than he might have let on. The other thing that we found so strange about our brief conversation with Hattenbach was his reaction when we brought up Edward Bangs. It's logical that we'd want to know about Bangs. It's not that we thought Hattenbach had any particular knowledge about him, but Bangs was also in their friend group and hung around the house on Westford Street. In the weeks leading up to Franklin's murder, he'd been working there, painting the outside of the house. But again, other than what Lee and Eric told the cops about Banks, there's nothing in the police report about him. Obviously, we wanted to talk to the police investigators directly about this. There were two main detectives on the case, Sergeants Wayman Allen and Wayne Wendell. Allen, who extracted the confession from Charles, died in 2019. But Wendell's still around. We caught up with him in mid-March 2021. He'd recently been released to a rehab facility after spending time in the hospital, sick with COVID. Sergeant Wendell. Yes. We didn't have a lot of time before he had to go to some kind of an appointment. So we tried to cut to the chase. He brought up Edward Bangs first. 
He said Bangs was an alternate suspect, but that they'd cleared him. How did you clear Edward Bangs? He had an alibi for when the time, time of death. I think, I think that's how we cleared it. He had an alibi. Do you remember what it was? He was somewhere else, uh, and, and witnesses to verify that. I'm just curious. It's not in the police report, so, I mean, would it normally have been in there? Do you have any idea why it wouldn't be in there? Uh, It normally would be in there. Uh, Huh. Yeah, there's nothing about him in there other than that. The grandson, as you noted, did mention his name, um, but then the report is silent other than than that. Well, is his written statement in there? No, there's no. We would have taken a written statement from him. No, there isn't any. Well, I would have taken a written statement. Do you remember taking a statement from him? Yeah, I did. Although Wendell seemed certain that Bangs had an alibi, there's nothing in the police report to suggest that investigators ever talked to him or to anyone else about his whereabouts the night Franklin was killed. And Wendell revealed something pretty astonishing in the process. You said you don't recall precisely what the alibi was for Edward Bangs. Is that correct? No, I don't. Or any of the folks who might have provided that alibi? Uh, Won't you ask him? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we've tried. (laughs) I know he was eliminated, and it was because uh, he had an alibi. He, had, he was somewhere else and could not appeal Mrs. Franklin. Since it seems like not everything is in the police report that, that you know, you all did, um, at any point... Well, some things are left out of there on purpose or that, uh, because uh, we'd, I really don't want the defense to know everything. And we tell, and, and this is relating orally to the district attorney, so uh, some of it is left out on purpose, intentionally. You heard that right. He's basically saying the cops would deliberately withhold information they didn't want the defense to know. This becomes a problem when police and prosecutors fail to disclose evidence that's favorable to a defendant. That's called a Brady violation. Conduct that runs afoul of a Supreme Court ruling that requires the state to hand over exculpatory evidence to the defense. But it's not every day that a state actor just comes out and says they withhold evidence. And here, Wendell was telling us that the cops themselves had a policy of keeping certain information out of the record before it even reached the DA's office. This isn't just screwed up because they're purposely hiding things from the defense. It also undermines their own work. The whole point of a police report is to document every step of an investigation. So it would be especially weird to eliminate any mention of clearing an alternate suspect. We wanted to know if the information about bangs was something they would have withheld. Would the bangs stuff be among that content? I'm sorry? The bang, the bang, sorry, Edward uh, Bang. Yeah, because it's not in there. I, so, frankly, I don't know. I don't recall that. 
we pressed him on this apparently informal policy of withholding information. And it seemed like he was trying to walk it back a bit. You're saying that you all didn't necessarily put everything in in writing uh, specifically because it was stuff that you didn't want the defense to have? No, we're just uh, not in writing because we, uh, it should be in the written statement. And, and if it's in the written statement, I may not put it in the body of the report. And I, I would just tell the, uh, the district attorney, uh, the, the prosecuting attorney, well, why don't you just read the, the, the written statement? And sometimes you have to hold it in front of their eyes for them to read it. Because uh, they, want, they want the whole case handed to them on like a piece of cake. I may have left it out of the report, but it was in the written statement. Yeah, that's the thing. There's just no written statement. There's nothing about that at all. uh, They uh, they might not release it to you. Wendell suggested that maybe there were documents the police department just didn't give us. That's possible, but we have no reason to believe that's the case. In fact, we got a lot from the HPD, including Wendell's and Allen's investigator notebooks. Spoiler alert, they didn't take many notes. We also wanted to know if Wendell had any idea what happened to Edna Franklin's nightshirt. The one she was wearing when she was killed, which was covered in blood, and which disappeared the day before Charles went to trial. There's sort of this mystery around what what happened with that nightshirt, why it hasn't been found. Obviously, Mr. Raby's defense attorneys would like to do some testing on there. Do you remember that that issue, that problem of the missing nightshirt or what might have happened to it? No, I don't. It should have been uh, part of the evidence at trial. If they called for it in court, then then it's in possession of of the district attorney's office. If they, they didn't call for it uh, for trial, it should be in the property room. And it may not be in the property room because uh, uh, those things are destroyed once they're, uh, I don't know, the shelf life or, you know, they, they, my, my, my uh, session is about to start, so I got to let y'all go. Okay. Wendell was wrong about at least one thing. And that's his idea that Franklin's nightshirt would have been destroyed after so long. That's not supposed to happen. In Texas, evidence in death penalty cases is stored for decades, sometimes even after a defendant has been executed. And while there's no evidence that Wendell and Allen got a statement from Bangs that cleared him, we do know that Bangs claimed to have an alibi for October 15, 1992. He told reporter Mike Giglio that more than 10 years ago. According to Bangs, he was with his girlfriend, Alicia Overstreet, the night that Franklin was killed. The problem? Alicia Overstreet said that wasn't true. She told Giglio that she and Banks hadn't been together for months when the murder took place. In part because she said Banks threatened to kill her. He was psychotic, she told Giglio. We knew that Banks had a long rap sheet. Theft, 
burglary, robbery, criminal trespass, and various drug charges. But the most serious was from 1993, the year before Charles's trial. In August of that year, Bangs was arrested for robbing a 63-year-old woman who told police that he'd stolen her purse after threatening to kill her. Bangs pleaded guilty and was sentenced to eight years. We wanted to talk to Bangs. We found him in prison serving time for drug possession. We wrote him an email, and he sent a letter back in February 2020. In all, we got three letters from him. And generally speaking, he was polite and seemed pretty eager to talk. Actually, he was surprisingly eager. Let's face it, if he was the real murderer in this case, why would he be so interested in speaking to reporters about it? Bangs wanted to know what motive we had for telling this story. And he didn't want to answer any questions in writing, which is how he'd communicated with Giglio. He said Giglio had used him as a, quote, scapegoat in the Houston press piece. He told us he was getting ready to be paroled and would be going back to Houston once he got out. He said he would get in touch. Several months went by, and Bangs's parole date kept getting pushed back because of COVID. And then, quite unexpectedly, on May 1st, 2020, we got an email from him. He said he was back in Houston and recovering from a bad case of COVID. He picked it up in prison and then gave it to his brother and nephew after he was released. We asked if we could set up a time to talk when he was feeling better. But then his tone shifted in a pretty stark way. He wrote that he had a lot to tell us, but that he wanted to be paid for the information. Quote, I would gladly speak to you, tell you of several odd things I saw, but I feel as if I should be compensated for my time. We told him that ethically we couldn't do that, that journalists don't pay for interviews. He retorted that it would be unethical not to pay him. I would be truthful in the interview, he wrote, so if you want truth, facts, the real on your story, I will help. Because I was there painting for a month and a half beforehand. I witnessed the crazy stuff going on. After that, we emailed him a couple more times, but never heard back. We figured we'd keep trying to get in touch with Bangs. But we also decided we should find Alicia Overstreet, his ex-girlfriend. The one who told Giglio that she was not with Bangs the night Franklin was killed. We sent her several emails, but didn't hear from her. Then, in April 2021, at the end of a long workday... I finally got a response. And it was not what I expected. Hey, sorry to bother you. Do you have a second? No problem. Yeah, what's up? Um, you'll never guess who just emailed me. Ooh. <laughs> Alicia Overstreet. No. Yeah. Yeah. I read the email from Alicia to Jordan over the phone. Quote, good afternoon. I did know Charles when we were teenagers. I remained in contact with Edward on and off until he passed away in September last year. Wait. What? Wait. Did he die? We looked online to see what we could find about what had happened. We found a Facebook post written by Bangs' brother. 
Bangs had been found unresponsive in his car on September 2, 2020. He had a temperature of 110. He'd apparently had a series of massive strokes. He was brain dead and on a ventilator at a Houston hospital for a couple weeks. The hospital had been trying to find Bangs's family. He was apparently homeless and had no ID on him. His brothers had to go to the hospital to take him off life support. He was just 50 years old. We called Alicia. We asked her how she found out that Banks had died. Well, he had been, you know, he was been most of his life locked up on and out. He had been out of jail for maybe like six months. And it's my daughter. He's He was my daughter's um, dad. So she found out and she let me know. Wow, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you had a, a child with him. Yeah. Oh. She said she knew Banks and Charles growing up. They all ran in the same circles. I guess, how would you describe them sort of individually? Charles, I didn't, um, well, both, God, just wild, like, uh, delinquent, uh, <laughs> what, what's the word I'm wanting to use? Um, yeah, delinquent um, teenagers just... Robbing stores. I remember one night Charles came running over to my house from from the gas station, like two blocks away, saying they had just robbed them. And so, um, yeah, he, you know, came over to my house with a bunch of things they had stolen out of the store. And I remember once he got into a fight with my brother-in-law and my dad. And I don't, I don't know the details, but I remember these things happening. And and then with with Edward, he was the same bipolar. He would have, you know, just outbursts, and, and he was violent with me. And, yeah. And I know that um, I had told uh, the Giglio person that, yeah, either one of them could have done what, what, they're acu- what, what Charles was accused of because I had to get away from Edward because of the abuse and the the mental stuff he put me through. And I I found out I was pregnant, and I was like, I can't bring my child up like this. So I, I left him. After that, she didn't see Bangs for years. He was in and out of jail. But when they finally did reconnect, she said he was still the same, violent with her. One of the big questions we've had, like, do you remember, did the, the police ever speak to you or do you remember them speaking to Edward? Nope. Neither one of them, I don't think. Not me, not Edward. Because I had asked Edward, did he do it? Did, and he was like, no, but this was like years later. This was, God, like past about four or five years ago and I asked him, did he do that? And he said, no. But I was like, mm, well, of course she's going to say no, but I don't know. You know, one of the things that just jumped out at us in the in the Giglio story was that Edward had claimed to have an alibi uh, he, that he said that he was with you. Oh, yeah. No, no, I, no, I was not with him. I was, he was not with me. Yeah, and I didn't even know that that had ever been said because um, no one ever asked me. What Alicia is saying here? means that Banks had no alibi for the night Franklin was murdered. 
because she was his alibi. I don't even know why Edward would have even said I was with him, I, but I was I was in another relationship with you know, and, and oh, I would have never been with him, not since you know I left him. And Edward would Edward would like he he would snap if someone looked at him the wrong way or if they looked at me like when we were together he would he would get in lots of fights and be beat up and just trouble. Man, did it sort of freak you out, I guess, to, to learn from that story that, that you'd been used as an alibi? I mean, I know we already discussed it, but man, that must have been a little bit chilling. Yes, because it was a blatant lie. We were surprised that she'd confronted Banks and asked him if he'd killed Franklin. Because I had told him, I said, well, you know, I because we, we talked about a lot of stuff. And I was like, I had, you know, I feel like, you know, you might have killed me or, or um, you, you know, that you're capable of killing somebody. And did you, I guess it was probably on lines like uh, like that, that I asked. It sounds like you did, you did fear that he might. Oh, yeah. I, when I was with him, yeah, that's why I, I left him. And then even later when he was coming around visiting me and we were just friends and he got mad at me one day here at my house because I would help him out every once in a while with his laundry or whatever because he was homeless. And he kind of got crazy with me and not kind of, he did. And, you know, pushed me and shoved me and slammed doors and I had to call the cops had him by the neck and said he was going to kick me. In case you missed that, she said she called the cops because Bangs had her by her neck, saying he was going to kill her. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Alicia's account of Bangs' abuse was pretty sobering. And his volatility, his capacity for violence, a lot of it sounded like Carrie Ann's descriptions of Charles. If Charles's behavior made him a good suspect for murder, it certainly seemed like the same might have applied to Bangs. Yet police never spoke to Alicia. In any event, finding out that Bangs was dead, it was a real blow. It's always shocking to have been in touch with someone who suddenly dies, especially in such grim circumstances. And for all his obvious flaws, there was a part of me that felt bad. Unlike Lynn Hardaway, the former Harris County prosecutor who told us an interview would require payment, Bangs had just gotten out of prison. He needed the money. From a reporting standpoint, of course, his death left so many unanswered questions. 
As Jordan and I went back and read our correspondence with Bangs, we were struck by a couple of things. One, he clearly had some knowledge about things going on around Edna Franklin's house before her murder. Crazy stuff, as he put it. We really wanted to know what he was talking about. The other thing that jumped out from the emails, unlike so many other people who are around at that time and who insist that Charles is guilty, Banks never once said this to us. Even though Bangs knew that he himself was the only other suspect whose name was given to police. For what it's worth, Charles has never pointed a finger at Bangs either. Here's Charles talking about that when we visited him in 2019. So do you have any, like, do you not have any idea who you think might have had a lot of time to think about? I mean, I don't want to point no fingers at nobody, you know. Even James Jordan, Charles's friend from childhood, who's the most outspoken about his doubts when it comes to Charles's guilt, was hesitant to accuse anyone in particular, including Bangs. Do you think he could have been capable of this? Man. Personally, I'm I'm one that I, I... don't make accusations um, lightly, so um, I, I won't. I won't speak one way or another about it. I don't know because I don't know that side of him. I know I've seen him when he was drunk, and I watched him act a donkey. I watched him kick all the windows out of his house because he was throwing a temper tantrum, you know, with his mom. Edward was um, a very, very angry young man when we were growing up. Um, and he could be a fool. He could be a fool. But like I told you, you know, I won't sit there and tell you something negative about him. That, you know, I, I, there's no, he hasn't have been found guilty of. They've never acknowledged him as, as any part of that. So, um, I wouldn't do that to him or anybody else. You know, but you never know what's inside of one's heart especially when there's alcohol or drugs involved. And at that point in time in our lives, um, all of us were uh, strung out on some type of dope. I hope that, you know, when it's all said and done, that, you know, uh, Charles gets what, you know, he has coming to him, be it freedom, be it death. Uh, But I just, I hope that he goes in peace. So in the letters and emails that Bangs wrote to us, he never once threw shade on Charles or anyone else. But what he did say was pretty intriguing, which was that there was all this crazy shit going on around Franklin's house. That at least suggests that there was more to the story and that whatever was going on might have played a role in what happened to Franklin. Which brings me to another point one that Charles has made over and over again, not only when we talked to him back at the end of 2019, but in numerous letters he's written to us since then. And that is that he hadn't been around the house on Westford that much. He actually hadn't hung with this group in years because he'd been in prison. And once he was out, he was spending time with Mary Alice. 
So it's hard to figure out why Charles would suddenly turn on Franklin in such a brutal and seemingly personal way. And why the only evidence left behind at the crime scene would point to someone other than him. So many people pointed to the fact that Charles was in prison to suggest he was capable of murder. Whereas Charles looks at it in an opposite way. He was in prison. And so for years, he had no connection to whatever was going on over there. Which would cut against the idea that he had a motive to kill Franklin. Charles isn't the only person who's pointed this out. Time Martin, James Jordan's ex-girlfriend, who was good friends with Eric Benj, told us this too. She hung around there all the time. She said Charles didn't. Me and Eric grew up together in the same neighborhood. So yes, I, I'm, I spent many of my days in that house with, with those people. Charles was not like a part of our everyday group or every other day group. You know, he would come around once in a while with Carrie Ann. You still might say, Charles confessed to the crime. But there's actually another reason to distrust Charles's confession. One we haven't told you about yet. And it's information that came to us from an unlikely source. Linda McLean, Edna Franklin's daughter. You might recall that Franklin had bad arthritis and that she couldn't get around the house without her shoes on. You might also remember that in his confession, Charles said that he walked in the house, sat on the couch, and then heard Franklin behind him in the kitchen, at which point he said he got up, grabbed her, and killed her in the living room. But Linda told us this couldn't possibly be right, because her mom's shoes were in her bedroom, which was in the back of the house, behind the kitchen. In the crime scene photos, you can see the shoes next to her bed. There is a picture with them by the bed. White. She, by her bed. she did not walk without her shoes so on. How do you explain? Like, this bothers Linda. But not because she thinks it is any indication that Charles is innocent. She thinks it's because he lied in his confession. That he left that out on purpose. Have you ever tried to figure that out in your head, why she's in one room and her shoes are in the other? Yeah, because he went in the back bedroom and drug her out of the bed and murdered her. That is what he probably did. There's nothing about the shoes in the police report. Or the fact that Franklin couldn't walk without them. Linda told us it wasn't until after Charles's trial that she saw any crime scene photos. And that's when she spotted the shoes. In one of our last conversations with Linda, we asked if she'd heard anything about Edward Bangs. I think he's in jail. Actually, we found out a little while back that Edward Bangs died. Oh my God. No kidding. Why? What happened to him? We told her what we knew and listened as she processed this information. She'd never believed that DNA cleared Charles. But news of Edward Bangs' death brought her back to the question of why he'd never been tested for DNA. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't have DNA tested Edward Bangs. Why wouldn't they have done that? He was in jail for 
assaulting someone, an old lady or something, which certainly is weird. But she couldn't figure out a motive for Bangs. Among other things, she pointed out he was getting paid to paint her mother's house. So why would he kill her? Because after she got murdered, I don't think he got paid anything else. I'm pretty sure he didn't. So that doesn't make any sense either. To me. I mean, I don't know what he got out of it. He wasn't mad at her. So what would he do it for? No, and now I can't ask him. I kind of wish I'd have known he got out of jail so I could have gone and found him. Because he's the only other likely suspect would be him. And that was the only person that I knew of that was angry at her, so. He's still my prime suspect. DNA or no DNA. The one that confessed to the murder. That's the one I'm going with. I do have a little bit of an update for you guys. That's Sarah Frazier, Charles's lawyer. We got on a Zoom call with her in early May 2021. And she told us something that Charles had mentioned in a recent letter. That the state of Texas, after a long pause was gearing up to restart executions. Sarah told us that Charles was one of the longest-serving people on Texas death row out of Harris County who was still eligible for execution, meaning no pending appeals or other factors that would make an execution unconstitutional. Of those who are eligible, there was only one other guy out of Harris County who had been there longer, and he was on the verge of getting an execution date. So this would also make Charles vulnerable to having a date set. Except there was actually a bigger piece of news Sarah had to share. The Harris County DA's office had agreed to another round of DNA testing. The new prosecutor on the case told Charles's lawyers that they could test whatever they wanted to. This was pretty mind-blowing. Sarah had gone from a situation where the state had fought tooth and nail against DNA testing to one in which the state was saying, sure, go ahead, let's do DNA testing. I was not expecting him to say that. It's sort of like, wait, 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 wait. I mean, because like there's just so many things about this case that sort of test your notion of reality. And so that was just another thing. It was like, wait a minute, am I talking to the Harris County DA's office? Did you say I could test whatever I want? This is a really big deal, because there's a lot of evidence that has never been tested. And it certainly could shed new light on this case, particularly if any of the new DNA testing reveals the same unknown male profile found under Franklin's fingernails. In other words, if the same male profile comes up on multiple pieces of evidence. Among the things that will be a part of this new round of DNA testing are a pair of Franklin's pants that were found near her body, and her purse and credit cards, which were found scattered on the floor by her bed. The state has also agreed to do another search for the missing nightshirt that Franklin was wearing when she was killed. If they can finally find it, it will be tested too. 
Of course, we don't know how all of this will play out. But whatever the DNA results, it will be up to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals to decide whether any of it matters. Over the course of reporting this story, we asked pretty much everyone how they felt about the death penalty. And in particular, how they'd feel if Charles were executed. And what we found was that almost no one seemed to be pushing for that. Frankly, no one thought that would change anything. You might recall that Franklin's grandson, Lee Rose, told us he had to forgive Charles in order to move on with his life. And Linda has told us from the beginning that even though she's convinced Charles is guilty, she doesn't necessarily want to see him executed. I don't personally care what they do with him. I don't care what happens to him. I don't care if he drops dead tomorrow, in the next five minutes, in the next 40 years. And even people who worked within the system, like Sergeant Wayne Wendell, don't believe the death penalty prevents violent crime. I'm curious because, you know, Obviously, Mr. Raby's confession was very powerful evidence against him. Um, and on the other hand, you know, we, we know that there have been cases over, over the decades where, where people are wrongfully convicted or, or even confess to things that they didn't do. And I just wonder, you know, to what extent that has concerned you over the years, just in general. Does that give you pause at all about the death penalty? Well, <laughs> asking my opinion about the death penalty. I never thought it'd be a, a deterrent uh, to crime, uh, to murder. Uh, I think uh, more appropriately, uh, a life without parole is a, is a much harsher sentence. Uh, and uh, and that, that's just my opinion. How about the, the, the question of innocence? Um, how much does that have to do with that? Innocence? I think a jury of 12 people who listen to the evidence, uh, prosecution and the defense, can make that decision. And, and that's who, who it should be. Charles is approaching his 30th year on Texas death row. In that time, he's seen nearly 500 others sent to the execution chamber including innocent people. We often hear death penalty supporters blame people like Charles for dragging out their cases, pursuing endless appeals just to game the system. This isn't really accurate. It's more complicated than that. But there is a more fundamental problem that we've seen over and over again. And that's the fact that the system often gets these cases wrong in ways that can take years to uncover. Look at Charles's case. The cops never really investigated the crime and instead became fixated on him from the start. At trial, the state withheld crucial blood evidence that pointed away from Charles. And when DNA testing came back that also didn't match him, the prosecutors just shrugged it off. And the courts have been happy to rubber stamp it all. Right now, Charles has hope that this round of DNA testing will finally prove his innocence. But he's had hope before. And every time those hopes have been crushed, it makes it harder to keep moving forward. Even after all these years, 
Charles cannot accept that the state wants to kill him for something he swears he did not do. But he's had to learn how to live with the fact that it may happen anyway. I think a lot of Americans, you know, don't think about the death penalty, but what, what do you think people really need to know, not just about your case, but about what it's like to, to be here, to live here, you know, and to sort of live the life you have? What do I mean? Like, knowing you're going to die one day? That ain't easy, you know I me. Mean, but but it's something like, yeah, I mean, I don't know, you come to terms with it. You know I mean? It's just, I don't know, I mean. It's, I don't know, I don't know how to answer that, you know, I don't really give it much thought, you know I mean? I mean, you think I would think about that stuff all the time, but I do everything I can not to think about it, you know? Murderville, Texas is a production of The Intercept and First Look Media. Andrea Jones is our story editor. Julia Scott is senior producer. Truk Wynn is our podcast fellow. Laura Flynn is supervising producer. Fact-checking by Miri Jesuthasen. Special thanks to Jack Desidoro and Holly DeMuth for additional production assistance. And to Spotland Productions in Nashville, Tennessee for recording the whole series. Our show was mixed by Rick Kwan with original music by Zach Young. Legal Review by David Brelo. Executive producers are Roger Hodge and Christy Gressman. For The Intercept, Betsy Reed is the editor-in-chief. I'm Liliana Segura. And I'm Jordan Smith. You can read show transcripts and see photos at theintercept.com slash murderville. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Liliana Segura and at chronic underscore Jordan. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash donate. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find us. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Tyler Tsaitis. Kayla, it's Inez. 
I'm Kalit Zenas, and I have been training a global community of women since 2009. I've created a brand new podcast, Sweat Daily, to help you level up your life and reach your health and well-being goals. From fitness tips to food that fuels you, meditation to motivation, we've got you covered. Sweat Daily, the happiest, healthiest, and most confident version of you awaits. Available on Apple Podcasts and wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.